Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to look at one of the best-known Old Testament passages in the entirety of the Old Testament, and especially when you say the word Daniel, every Sunday school child knows, oh, Daniel in the lion's den. That is such a popularly known story that back when Sir Robert Anderson was writing his defenses of the book of Daniel, he even titled one of his books, Daniel in the Critic's Den. Because he's so familiar with the story we're going to look at tonight. But what we're going to look at tonight also has a context and it has some of the most controversial components of the Old Testament book of Daniel. So we're going to talk about a little bit of those too. Uh, We're not going to start right at Daniel 6, even though that's what we're going to be reading tonight. Instead, turn to the end of the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36. Because the next chapter of Daniel that we're going to read is while Daniel is now serving in the court of the Persian hierarchy. And so something has changed. He was in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw Belshazzar and his feast and the handwriting on the wall. And now the rulership in Babylon has changed to the Medes and the Persians. Now, I will tell you that the Medes, as a people group, are historic. We can trace them. We know who they are. They kind of appear in Middle Eastern history during the time that they take sides with Babylon against the Assyrians. And so they're rising up as a political power in the Middle East during that time. But then they are ultimately sort of subsumed if subsumed is a word, if it's not, I'm using it anyway, and it will be a word by the time I'm done tonight. They're sort of subsumed into the Persian Empire under King Cyrus. Now, the reason we're looking at Second Chronicles is because we made our way all the way through the Old Testament, starting at Genesis, and we went all the way through First and Second Kings. And Second Kings ended at the last of the kings of Judah being taken into the Babylonian captivity. And First and Second Chronicles run fairly parallel to First and Second Kings, which is why we didn't read First and Second Chronicles in its entirety, because we were pretty much getting the material from the king's accounts. But Second Chronicles actually goes a little further at the end than First and Second Kings does. It actually reaches out into the Persian Empire and Cyrus as ruler. So I want you to look at that because this is a very vital part of the history of the Jews, of the Judahites, of the southern kingdom. So we're going to read Second Chronicles 36. We're going to start at verse 17. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Therefore he brought up Against them, against Judah, the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, 
and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. So God brought up the king of the Chaldeans, who is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, on purpose in order to punish the Jews, the southern kingdom, for the fact specifically that they had not been letting the land enjoy its Sabbaths. And you're going to see that from Jeremiah. We're going to look at it in a few moments that God had specifically told the Israelites that every seven years they had to trust him that he was going to give them enough food in the sixth year that they weren't to farm their land in the seventh year because his Sabbath rules even included the land that belonged to him. And he said that the land had to keep its Sabbaths. And they, rather than trust him, kept farming the land. And as a consequence, God took them out of the land for the specific reason so that the land could keep its Sabbaths. And then Jeremiah is going to tell us how long they're going to be out of the land. It's 70 years. So God very specifically brought up the king of the Chaldeans who slew the young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion. Verse 18, and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, he brought them all to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away into Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Okay, that's information you don't get from First and Second Kings. That after the Babylonian incursion, the Babylonians were thrown over or overthrown. I don't care which word order we go with there. That the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete." So specifically, the reason that God took them into the Babylonian captivity and kept them there right into the Persian captivity was specifically so that the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. Let's see Jeremiah predict that. Tom, you can look up Jeremiah 29.10 for us. And then anybody else who's sitting in the front two rows, I'd like you to look up Jeremiah 25.11. There's no one in the front two rows. Would you do me a favor, Leon, and look up Jeremiah 25, 11? I don't know why people trek the distance to come to GCA. They come from near, they come from far. People come from the other side of the planet, but they just can't come that last four feet. There's just something about that that they immediately go, oh, I, I've come this far, but I can't occupy those front two rows. That's too much. You got it, Tom? Yes. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
So we know now through Jeremiah that it's going to be 70 years. And that's why the writer of 2 Chronicles says specifically to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Jeremiah 25, 11 says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Okay, so it comes up twice. How often does God have to say something in order for it to be true? Once. Once. But he repeated this several times, and it's repeated in the Chronicles because... I'm just driving the point, 70 years is a very specific, solid number that God has put out there. That's why Daniel, having access to Jeremiah, knowing the prophecies of Jeremiah, knew that God was going to leave them in Babylon for 70 years. And that's why, as we continue through Daniel, we're going to see that he goes to God, confesses all the sins of his people, and then prays to God that God will just do what he said he's going to do because the 70 years are coming to a close. And so something's got to give. God has said 70 years. Now verse 22 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and he put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. What does he mean by the God of heaven has appointed me to build him a house? Well, it's because he had access to the prophecies of Isaiah, and Isaiah named the king of Persia by name 150 years in advance. So the king of Persia, seeing that the uh, scripture of the Jews predicted him by name, felt pretty convicted that the God of heaven had plans for him. We're also going to see this as we look at the next chapter of Daniel. It's not enough to just read Daniel was in the lion's den and the lions didn't eat him. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it convinced Cyrus, the king of the Persians, and Darius, the king of the Medes, that the god of Daniel was a god that they had to pay attention to. That's the whole point of Daniel in the lion's den. So thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. That's how Second Chronicles ends. Now you can turn to Daniel. Now I mentioned that this chapter of Daniel is very controversial because it starts out by speaking of Darius, the Median king. And as we just read, once Cyrus rises to prominence and the Medes are sort of subsumed, I'm using that word again, are sort of subsumed into the Persian empire and the Persian society, at that point Cyrus becomes ruler. And so it's in the first year of Cyrus that he makes the decree that they can go back. But for a while, Darius is ruling in Babylon. I'm going to call him Darius all night, even though some people call him Darius the Mede. 
Daniel writes about Darius. He even says, verse 28 of chapter 6, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, two different people who ran in succession ruling over Babylon. But here's where the controversy kicks in. But if you go read right now on Wikipedia, don't anybody go read on Wikipedia right now. But if you go take a look at Wikipedia, they will tell you that you can't trust this chapter. In fact, they'll tell you that you can't trust Daniel. They naturally take the very liberal view that Daniel was late dated. It was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. There's no way that Daniel could have known the succession of kingdoms. He couldn't have named Persia during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He couldn't have named Alexander the Great in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So he must have written it after the Grecian Empire had come in and taken over the Middle East. That's when Daniel was actually written. But as I've said a few times, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that the book of Daniel actually predates the period that the critics are trying to claim Daniel wrote. And yet, despite that actual physical archaeological evidence that they're wrong, the liberals still hold the day. And so if you look at the internet, they will tell you that Daniel can't be trusted. And one of the things that they will say is, if you look at secular history, even though there is Darius a king of the Medes, and even though the Medes exist, that the timeline for Darius the Mede can't be where Daniel places him, and that there's no later Darius among the Medes that they're aware of simply because they can't find him in secular history. And they will say across the board, there is no record of Darius the Mede, except that if Daniel is legitimate, that's a record of Darius the Mede, who ruled in Babylon just before Cyrus. And we know that when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon, the slaves didn't immediately get to go back and build their temple in the first year. It's not until Cyrus, the second ruler, who rose up on one side. Later, Daniel's going to see that image, the image of a bear who rises up on one side, has three bones in his teeth. Well, that's exactly what happened to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes were in charge in the Babylonian area, and the Persians rose up over them. And so it's a, a very specific and very good image of what actually happened. And if Daniel is a legitimate piece of history, which the Qumran caves attest it is actually written when it was supposed to be written, which means that it actually is prophecy in advance. Even if you want to argue that Daniel is some unknown prophet or his name was stuck on her, it's still written during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and it still accurately predicts the Persians, and it still accurately predicts the Medes, and it still accurately predicts Alexander the Great, even going so far as to say that Alexander's kingdom isn't going to go to his posterity. It's going to be divided among his four generals. That's very specific. And it actually happened. Yes, Mark? So I've got a question. This is a sort of an argument I've had. You tell me if you think it's a good argument or if it's right. And that is, okay, Say this guy Daniel didn't exist, but we have the Septuagint that's got Daniel in it. So somebody made up Daniel and made up the past, but they also made up the next <coughs> 200 years of future uh, to correlate with a, a prophecy. Is, is that a valid uh, observation? I think it is, but I would go further and say Jesus called Daniel a prophet. 
Matthew 24, Jesus himself, who would know whether or not this is a forgery written less than 200 years before Jesus is on the planet, Jesus would know if that was a forgery. And yet he validated. He not only calls Daniel a prophet in Matthew 24, but then he quotes the prophecy from Daniel and says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then you'll know to flee. So it's either a forgery good enough to fool the king of the universe or, or it's actually accurate prophecy. So for me, I really go back every time to, but Jesus said. I mean, even the archaeological evidence and all the arguments online and all of the buddies here, buddies there. Ezekiel mentions Daniel. Actually, it's God who mentions to Ezekiel that if Daniel was standing in front of him trying to convince him. And so God seems to think that there's a prophet named Daniel who just happens to be a contemporary of Ezekiel's, which is exactly where Daniel places himself in history. Dwayne. The Wikipedia says that Daniel was written later. They would at least be admitting there was a Daniel and that it was written. They would say that Daniel is a pseudonym, and they would say that Daniel was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, 180, 200 years before Jesus was on the planet. Right. And that is the position of the German higher critics, late 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. And so across the board, they're arguing that late date thing because it's not until the 1950s, late 1950s, that the Qumran Caves are discovered, where we have all these ancient documents, and the apocalypse of Daniel is in it. Okay, kind of a clue. It, it just proves that the late daters are wrong because Daniel existed before they said it even could exist. So here's my point. If Daniel is, in fact, accurate history and he mentions Darius the Mede, everything else that we've seen in Daniel so far in the historical portions of the first six chapters has been accurate. Think about this. Belshazzar, for the longest time, we had no history of anybody named Belshazzar who ruled after Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Actually, Nabonidus is the son of Nebuchadnezzar who ruled in Babylon after that. And yet Daniel says it was Belshazzar ruling. And so the critics climbed all over it. Again, the German higher critics jumped all over the fact that there is no Belshazzar in recorded history until they dug up the Nabonidus cylinder which explained to us that Nabonidus was a fairly absent king and that he was actually resting in an oasis outside of Babylon and left Babylon in the rule of his son, and his son's name is spelled right out, Belshazzar. There it is, archaeological evidence that Daniel was right. But for more than 2,000 years, everybody was saying, well, that's wrong, that's wrong. 2,000 years, no Belshazzar, that's wrong. Daniel's wrong. You don't have to read Daniel. Don't believe Daniel. Then it turns out that he was absolutely right. So in as much as he got the Belshazzar thing right, I'm prone to believe that if he says there was a Darius the Mede who happened to be the ruler in Babylon just before Cyrus decided to rule from there, and he says that's the sequence of kings that ruled in Babylon, so far his batting average is 1,000. So I'm going to go with there probably was a Darius the Mede who ruled in Babylon at that period. Does that make sense? Sure. Mm -hmm. Because when you go home, 
If you get online and say, I'm going to read about what Pastor Jim was talking about tonight, you're going to see that the liberals are coming out in force saying that Daniel 6 is part of a larger forgery that may have even been added by a whole different author than uh, the author who wrote the other five beginning chapters of the book of Daniel, and they claim that the, uh, even the writing style changes and uh, just blah, blah, blah. Uh, one more thing. It turns out, and I haven't found evidence of this. I've looked for it. I've searched for it. On the Internet where you can find just about everything, I haven't been able to find this. But I read, again, on a page of a critic of Daniel, that he says that the story of Daniel in the lion's den is typical of the fables and stories that were around the Middle East at that time. They claim that there were fables of, in very broad sweeping terms, fables of people who were in power, who fell out of power, who then had to go through some kind of trial, they were helped by some kind of god or demigod, and then they were returned to power. And so that's a very common theme. You can see it in movies coming out of Hollywood today. And then some of these critics say lions are symbolic of powerful people, and all the Daniel story did was make them literal lions, and that the story line is just typical Babylonish fable line, so there the Bible's not true. So I went looking, and I don't know what you got to Google up to find these things. I don't know what you got to bing to find the Ask Jeeves. I have no idea what you got to do to find these things because I, I couldn't find any fables that ran concurrent to this. I found storylines of, you know, just like I said, in Hollywood, there are the storyline. People in power lose their power and then something happens and they regain their power and authority. I mean, that's a real typical story arc. But to claim that Daniel is a forgery because that story also exists is the basis that the critics are working off of. I find it a pretty tenuous argument, but it exists out there. I'm just trying to tell you all this so that when you bump into it, you can go, oh, yeah, Pastor Jim said that because that all exists out there. Because get this right, if Daniel is true, if Daniel is written at the time that Daniel says it's written, then he prophetically, on some spiritual level beyond all his contemporaries, he prophesied the next kingdoms to come in order, accurately, in phenomenal detail. And if that's true, then there's still one more ten-nation kingdom coming. All right, whose car is that? And you hit the panic button. Hey, it stopped. It stopped. I got up. <laughs> <laughs> I won't lean on my purse anymore. She just couldn't take the Daniel stuff anymore. <laughs> and she hit the panic button. And panic broke out. And okay, well that was that was just the devil. Because I was about to make a point that I was driving you to. I had you right where I wanted you. 
I was about to make a really great point, and you were all going to have the aha moment all at once, and you were all going to go, that's right. And then she hit the panic button, and then everything went haywire. Here's my point. It's such an obvious point. No, no, you're not excommunicated, no, because it's, it's too much fun to burn people at the stake. I think tar and feathering is too good for her. So. Oh. oh, now I have to leave in the whole panic button thing. Oh, I got to leave it all in now. Come back. Come back. Here's the point I was trying to make. If Daniel, in advance, accurately predicted the next kingdoms that would rise up in the Middle East that would specifically take Judah or Israel into bondage and would rule over that part of the Middle East, if he was that accurate, he also talks about one more king. He also talks about a ten-toed kingdom that hasn't happened on the planet yet. And he also talks about the little horn. He also talks about that man that understands dark sentences. We sometimes refer to him as the Antichrist. He accurately predicts that there's a time of trouble coming on the planet such as never was or ever would be again, and that Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom that no man is ever going to conquer, the kingdom that's going to go on forever. So if he is accurately predicting history in advance well we can't have that if we can get away from Daniel being able to tell us what's coming up in human history then we can get away with or away from all of those judgment passages and there is no Jesus coming back and there is no clouds of the sky and the ten thousands of his saints and there is no little horn and antichrist and there is no kingdom to come and there there's none of that if Daniel's a forgery. So can you see the vested interest that the critics would have in trying to prove Daniel to be a forgery? Except that archaeology and history keep proving the veracity of the book of Daniel. And so what do the critics do? Well, they stomp their feet and they ignore the evidence and they say that just can't be because they have the a priori position that miracles don't happen. And then they argue in a circle. They say miracles don't happen, therefore miracles can't happen. And if the Bible says miracles happened, then the Bible's wrong because miracles can't happen. And now we're back to miracles don't happen because miracles can't happen. And so if the Bible says miracles do happen, well, by, well, then the Bible's wrong because miracles can't happen. And so miracles don't happen. And it just goes in this great big circle. Echo chambers. You see a lot of that online. You see critics making stuff up. I mean, literally making stuff up without any evidence, any proof, any citations. And then you see somebody else quote them as their citation. Yes. So that it appears academic. Right. And he just made it up. But it's happening today. The denial continues. What were you saying, Mark? Or were you just agreeing with me? Okay. Well, thank you for that then. So, all right, let's start reading. We're in Daniel 6. I think that was a sufficiently long introduction. Chapter 6, verse 1. No, chapter 5, verse 30. 
That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. You can go on Wikipedia right now and they will tell you as they list the kings that ruled in Babylon that they don't know whatever happened to Belshazzar because they ignore what the Bible says happened to Belshazzar. Now they admit that Babylon fell to the Medes and then the Persians behind them. So what do you do when you conquer a city? You kill the king. And that's what the Bible says. And then Wikipedia will tell you, we don't know what happened to Belshazzar. We have no idea. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Chapter 6, verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer any loss. So there's the king, there's the three uh, officials just under him, and then there's 120 local governors. And so the local governors have to go report to the three officials who report to the king, and one of those three officials is a Jew. And we can't have that. These are the captured people. We can't have Daniel ruling over us. We're Persian governors. Quit pushing the panic button. I mean, I knew tonight was going to be controversial, but my goodness. You would think there was a limit. Verse Three, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now that's just God's good grace. Not only was he second only, well, third only in all of uh, Babylon, but now the Medes and the Persians come in, and he's right back there in power. He's there again, which to some degree makes sense. It makes political sense that if you come and overthrow a city, that you want to keep some things in place, sort of like there are still Obama appointees still doing their jobs today, because some things just kind of stay in place. For the good of the community, you want somebody who knows how things work. And so Daniel continued to serve, but he served so well and he distinguished himself so much that the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now this tells us right away that Daniel was very careful to make sure that he kept the law of his God, even though he was living in a foreign country, even though he had gone through the deportation, even though he was in government, he recognized that God was the king and that his laws ruled, so much so that they were in the Babylonian captivity because the Israelites had not kept God's law, especially in this case where the Sabbaths were concerned. 
So he was keeping the law of God, so they figure out, well, well, then we've got to catch him in something having to do with the law of his God. As far as the laws of the Medes and the Persians, we got nothing on him. Now, we're going to find out a couple times as we go through this chapter that the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. And that was sort of a standard of Medo-Persian law, and actually you can find it in history, that the Medes and the Persians, once they put a law in place, that was that. Things couldn't be changed. And they knew that. They were aware of that. Verse 6, then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement. So they're, they're conspiring together. They came to the king and they spoke to him as follows. King Darius or King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into a lion's den. So they're doing this on purpose. They recognize that Daniel, who prays three times a day to his God facing Jerusalem, that if they make a rule that nobody can pray to anybody except Darius, that they can catch Daniel. So either Daniel is going to, for 30 days, not pray to anyone but Darius, or he's going to continue praying to his God, and now he's guilty. So they're setting up a trap for Daniel. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. And I think King Darius just kind of listened to everybody and said, yeah, okay, all right, we'll just make that rule, never realizing that these people were out to get Daniel because you're going to see that he has great affection for Daniel and he's concerned that once Daniel is caught by this law, he's upset that he can't change it. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, they said that all of them had agreed. So they, were yeah, they all agreed. Daniel yeah. was involved in the agreement. Yeah. The decision yeah. as well. There's a lot of deception here. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. So Daniel knows the rule, Daniel knows his life is in jeopardy, and he knows who God is. And he continues praying to his God toward Jerusalem, regardless of the rule. Uh, you can go online again, and you will find lots and lots of sermons about that. And I don't think I need to extrapolate too greatly to say the rules of God supersede the rules of men. That's just the way it is. If God says, be a certain way, or don't do a certain thing, and society says, no, it's okay. You came in here tonight, and you were talking about gender equality. So you open up the Bible right away, you get to the book of Genesis, God made men and women. And there was a distinction between men and women. And then people all get together in academia and they say, 
There is no more distinction between men and women. And men can call themselves women, and women can call themselves men, and anybody can use any bathroom and locker room they want to, and that becomes the rule of men, but the rule of God still stands. The distinction between men and women and the particular roles that they are meant to play in society and in the household and in the Christian church all still stand, despite the fact that society is trying to break those rules down. So anyway, Daniel, knowing the rule, knowing what the king has said, and knowing that it's at risk of his own life, continues to honor God. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. They just happened to show up at that exact time that Daniel has always been praying at that window. And sure enough, he's there praying at that window. So they've set him up entirely. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. The king still doesn't seem to know what's going on behind the scenes. So they say, verse 13, then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, very specific. They know he's a Jew. They're out to get him specifically because he's a Jew. Daniel, who is of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statement which the king establishes may be changed. So now King Darius realizes he has just set Daniel up for death. Daniel now gets the death penalty because he listened to all of his advisors. So verse 16, then the king gave orders. And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. That is a deep theological statement. In the midst of these stories, every once in a while you find these statements that are just universally true. For instance, it wasn't until he was in the belly of the great fish that Jonah came to the conclusion, salvation is of the Lord, which is a deep theological truth. Here, I'll give you another example. Uh, the high priest said that, uh, in speaking of the death of Jesus, said it's better for one man to die than that the whole nation should, should be overthrown. He was exactly right. It was better for that one man to die than that the whole nation of Israel be overthrown because they don't have a redeemer. And uh, I think it's John who says to us, who gives us the hint, who tells us parenthetically, he didn't know what he was saying, but being high priest that year, 
he spoke the word of God even though he was killing the Prince of Life at the moment he was doing it he was stating a truism because he was the high priest who stood for God so God moves into these terrible situations and then reveals great and lasting theological truths and I could look at anybody in this room and say your God whom you serve will himself deliver you whatever you're in whatever you're in the midst of and deliver you from this life and the trials of this life and bring you into the ultimate deliverance of his glory in heaven that's just universally true your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you because King Darius knew he couldn't do it he tried he can't do it because what men think they can do they can't do once there's a law in place against Daniel signed by the Medes and the Persians well then that law against Daniel has to be executed and once there's a law that comes down from Mount Sinai written by the finger of God that accuses everybody and makes everybody guilty then everybody stands condemned by that law unless God himself delivers us you see how great this truth is your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you verse 17 and a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the lion's den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel the whole point of that is they would put a little wax down and then the king would put his signet ring in it the king was the only one that was allowed to have that particular signet and that showed that the king sealed the rock if they came back later and the seal was broken it was proof that somebody moved the stone so maybe that's how Daniel survived or Daniel got out so they sealed the rock so that they could prove evidentially that nobody had moved the rock then the king went off to his palace, verse 18 says, and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him, and his slept fled from him. Then the king arose with the dawn at the break of day, and he went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions then Daniel spoke to the king and said O king live forever that's always the first thing you say when you address the king first thing you say is O king live forever can you imagine what Darius is thinking at this moment He's been up all night and his sleep has left him and he's terrified and he's just killed an innocent man. And he says as he's sealing the rock, your God will deliver you. And then he waits up all night. He runs back at sunup immediately, runs out there and says, Daniel, has your God delivered you? And he hears back, O king, live forever. That had to have been a great relief to King Darius. But it also convinced Darius of what you're going to see at the end of this chapter. And what you're going to see at the end of this chapter is really the point of this chapter. The Sunday school story stops at Daniel was in the lion's den and he didn't get eaten. 
That's kind of the end of the story. Maybe some people will tell you that those men who conspired against Daniel ended up in the lion's den and they got eaten. But the real point of the story is what Darius concludes as a result of this. Everything we've read so far is just preparation for what Darius is going to say, just like Nebuchadnezzar was made crazy when he looked out over Babylon and said, isn't this great Babylon which my own hand has made? And then he had to eat grass and his hair grew like feathers and his his nails grew out and and he he ate with the cattle until the time of, of God's punishment on him passed and then he was returned to his kingdom. That's when he concluded that the God who is in heaven does whatever he wants among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and And that he does all his will and nobody can stop his hand and nobody can say, what doest thou? That's the point of Nebuchadnezzar's craziness. And Daniel in the lion's den is just preparation for what Darius is about to write. Daniel, the king spoke. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before God. And also toward you, O king, I have committed No crime. You think Darius is pretty convinced at this moment that Daniel, pretty straight up guy. I guess if Alex were here, I'd have to have said pretty stand up guy. (laughs) That was my Alex impression. It was okay. Yeah, you know, he's a stand up guy. Every once in a while, Jim lets me out of my cage. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. (laughs) My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before them. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. The king has now figured it all out. These guys made me sign this rule. These guys came up with this rule and had me sign it just to get Daniel. They're just after him. And his God has just shown me that he's utterly innocent and has treated me nothing but honestly and faithfully. So the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den you got to know the wives were going, what did I do? He did it. The children were, Daddy, what did you Into the lion's den. He was mad. Apparently, Darius was upset. But that was the kind of power that a king in the Middle East, in Babylon, had at that point. The power of life and death. So they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. 
and they had not even reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones, which shows you the lions were hungry. The lions were vicious. And the lions should have destroyed Daniel. So there really was genuinely a miracle here. It's not just that the lions got lazy that day. It was not just fortunate timing or that they had just had a good meal and then Daniel showed up. They were actually vicious and hungry and ready to kill and ready to crush bones. And so when the men and their families were thrown in, they were destroyed before they even hit the bottom of the den. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples and nations and men of every language who were living in all the land. This is what he wrote. This is the point of the story. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Does this sound familiar? This sounds like what was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. He had his dream of a statue. Didn't know what it meant. Daniel's the one who tells him what it means. You're the head of gold. Then there's going to come the sides of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then there's going to be the belly and sides of brass. And then there's going to be the legs of clay and the feet of clay and iron in a muddy mixture. And then a stone comes from heaven, crushes the feet of the idol. The idol turns to dust and blows away. And the stone kingdom set up by Christ endures forever. And that's what God keeps saying over and over again. Homecoming week Sunday, I said, lately I've been obsessing about the kingdom. And then last Wednesday, we went back to talking more about the kingdom. And Alex was here and he said, can you elaborate on that? Why are you obsessing about the kingdom? And it's because God seems very intent on teaching these people over and over again, there's a kingdom coming. This is all about a kingdom as real, as physical, as genuine as any kingdom that ever was in the Middle East. And because all of these other kingdoms actually existed in the history of the world, I am convinced that the stone kingdom, the kingdom of our Christ, David sitting, David's greater son, sitting on David's throne, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, that's how the kingdom is described. And God is even revealing it to the foreign kings when they conquer his people who are going to have the ultimate kingdom. God seems to be obsessed with this kingdom thing. And that's why I'm obsessing about this kingdom thing. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's why we started at the end of the book of Second Chronicles 
and the introduction of Cyrus the Persian into our succession of kings in the Middle East and the kings over Israel and Judah, because the very next thing, and in fact, the very next book, even chronologically, that you find in the Old Testament, is the book of Ezra. And then you're into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple and everything that, that uh, Cyrus has ultimately concluded to do. And if Jesus tarries and I live and know my own name, we will eventually get to Ezra and Nehemiah. But we got to get through Daniel, which is still going to take us a while, because now, starting at chapter 7, we're getting into the visions of Daniel, the prophetic stuff. And it's going to take some time to look at the details and recognize how phenomenally accurate this is. This is why the critics don't like this book. And then we're going to have to spend some time in Ezekiel. Even if we don't do all of Ezekiel, he is in Babylon at the same time as Daniel. And so we have to contrast and compare. And then maybe we can get to Ezra and Nehemiah and then into the time of Artaxerxes. And that will finally take us to the time of uh, Esther in front of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, whose father was named Xerxes. And then he was Artaxerxes. And then that name fell out of popular use, and, and I'm happy about that. Too many X's. But these are names that are worth a lot of money in Scrabble. And so very, very high points, huge points. And if someone puts down Xerxes, put an Artax in front of it, and man, you're cleaning up anyway. You're right, you can't use proper names. I should have known that, but it was, it was worth the joke, though. <laughs> so there's just so very much to do. I hope I live long enough to do it all. If I don't, I'll leave it to uh, Jeff and Micah, and they'll take care of you, and you'll be okay. They'll cover it. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. In uh, chapter 6, verse 8, does that imply that Daniel also had to sign the, the decree in the lion's den? No, the king had to sign the decree. That's the only signature that mattered. But they, but they represented that everybody agreed. But being in that the king ultimately kills them, apparently for the way they manipulated him through their lies, they may have represented to the king that Daniel agreed, even if okay. he'd been no part of it. Okay. Yeah. It didn't make any sense. Right. It wouldn't make any sense for Daniel to agree to that. But they went to the king and said, yeah, we all agree. This is a good rule. Don't worry about that. Sign it. So. Anything else? Any other questions? We're good? Oh, good question. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned, I want to ask... Where Jesus mentions the abomination that causes desolation, um, from what I've read, from what I can tell, the Jews thought that was past tense when before he said that. Those mm -hmm. things had already come to, to be. Mm -hmm. He mentioned Antiochus Epiphanes, with yep. them cooking people in big frying pans yep. and that kind of thing. And he also sacrificed a pig on the altar in the right. temple and stuff. I he, mean, he. he uh, image of himself in the right. temple. Um, he had definitely profaned the temple, and so there was a popular theory that that was it. He was it. Yeah. And among the preterists today, they will continue to say that is it. That's the one. But the fact that Jesus threw it out into the future right. means he couldn't have been it. Do, do 
is the case that it couldn't have been it or that there's like a two fulfillments? I think there's like a foreshadow. Okay. You know? Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. But, but obviously it was not the final it right. or else Jesus wouldn't have cast it into the future as something still coming. When you see the abomination, then you'll know to flee. And, then you'll, and the very fact that he says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, is going to get them to go to Daniel and Daniel's going to tell them where to flee. Jesus just says, flee to the wilderness. Daniel says the three areas, Moab, Ammon, Edom. Edom. Thank you. Did you bring the brain tonight? That's good. <laughs> Uh, Daniel specifically says that those are the three areas that the little horn isn't going to get to. So they even are going to find out when Jesus says flee to the wilderness, they have to go back to their Daniel to know where to flee. So there's all these connections that I think are uh, too strong to say that, that Jesus thought it was already finished. If it was already finished, if it was already done, why bring it up? Yeah. We're going to get to cover all this in our Daniel study? Yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah. We're going through the whole book, verse by verse. Anything else? All righty then. We're doing that well. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.